Well, dear friends, our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 14. Last week, in verses 1 to 6 of this final chapter of Hebrews, we considered together the pastor's initial instructions concerning how his hearers were to live together. Verses 1 to 6, we said, were practical instructions about brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue, the pastor wrote in verse 1. That meant they were to show hospitality, to remember those who were in prison or mistreated or suffering, to hold in honor God's intention for sex and marriage, to avoid the love of money and be content. And all of it, we said, was possible because of the power and promises of God in the end of verse 5 and verse 6. I will never leave you nor forsake you, the Lord promises us. So, the pastor says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? which means that in the end, it all comes down to faith, trusting the promises of God for the future and the power of God for life in the present. Living the kind of radical yet normal Christian life that the pastor describes here is a matter of faith because faith isn't just a matter of what we believe, but also how we live. We cannot separate the two. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 17 and following, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That sounds an awful lot like what has almost become our theme verse in the study of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, the pastor writes there, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You may enter the kingdom of heaven to use Jesus' own wording. Faith isn't just a matter of what we believe, but of how we live. And I think it's that reality of faith that drives our text this morning in verses 7 to 19. We're going to take two weeks on Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 19. This morning, we'll work through verses 7 to 14. And then next week, we'll continue in verses 15 to 19. And while both of these aspects of faith are present in both parts of this text, maybe it will help to think of our passage in this way, that in verses 7 to 14, first of all, the pastor is especially focused on the importance of what his hearers believe, and then in verses 15 to 19, secondly, the pastor is especially focused on the importance of how his hearers live. 
Look ahead at verse 15 just for a moment. This is where we'll begin next week. But I want you to see where what we'll talk about this morning is moving. After we complete this first part of the argument in verse 14, this is the pastor's key exhortation that we'll take up next week. He says in verse 15, through him then, in other words, in conclusion, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. You will recognize them by their fruits, Jesus said. And so it is also in Hebrews. That's where we're going next week. This morning in verses 7 to 14, as he focuses primarily on what we believe, I think the pastor gives his hearers, including us, three ways to ensure we will be among those who live by faith who do what verse 15 will exhort us to do. Three ways. And the three things I see here are number one, remember your leaders. That's verses seven and eight. Number two, strengthen your heart. That's verses nine and 10. And number three, embrace the way of the cross. That's verses 11 to 14. Remember your leaders, strengthen your heart, and embrace the way of the cross. We need to do all three of those things, Christians, in order to center our minds and hearts properly on on our belief, if we're actually going to live by faith in the ways verses 1 to 6 talked about, and which verses 15 to 19 we'll talk about next week. And so we begin in verses 7 and 8, and the main point's right there at the start, because the pastor says in verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So already you can see that the pastor is not dividing strictly here between what we believe and how we live. It's all together. In fact, that's the whole point. In remembering our leaders, there are two things in view here. There's what they spoke, the word of God, and how they lived, their way of life. The two go together. Having drawn attention to both of those things, the pastor then concludes with the exhortation to imitate their faith which means to imitate the whole thing, to believe the truths they spoke, and to walk similarly to their way of life. Do we want to live by faith? Then here's the first thing we should do. Remember our leaders. So let's talk about that some more. To start, I think it's important to recognize that the word for leader that the pastor uses here is a generic term. And that's important because I think the point here is something broader than just remember your pastor or remember your bishop or remember your deacon or priest. Obviously, 
The leaders who do give supervision to the church are very much included in what the pastor says here. How could they not be? You might even argue that they're especially in view here. But I don't think it's limited to that. Because the pastor defines who he means when he goes on to say they are those who spoke to you the word of God. Those who are our leaders are those who in some way proclaim God's word as fulfilled in Christ. That's what Hebrews itself is all about. Of course, so certainly this does include preaching or writing a sermon. But it's more than just that. For us, it could include other things like teaching catechism or a children's Sunday school class or leading a Bible study or I think it could include leading a small group or discipling a new believer. I, I realize that I'm in some danger here of flattening the reference too much, but the point is that we're to draw encouragement and strength from remembering our leaders. And I think our leaders are those who have exercised influence in our Christian lives because they have spoken the word of God to us. We've learned from them, in other words. We are to actively remember them, recognizing that what they gave us is of eternal value. They delivered to us the content of the word of God. Maybe it was when we first came to faith. Maybe it was in different seasons of our Christian lives. Likely it means more than just one or two people come to mind. In many of our cases, I'm sure it's several persons we should remember. The point is they gave us the truth of the word of God that changed our lives. As much as it's right and good for us to read and study the scriptures on our own, we're not meant to just do that. We need teaching to grow as Christians. The Lord uses such teaching in our lives of faith. That's the point. And it's significant to note here that the leaders in view, in this case, probably had already died. Later in verse 17, the pastor will speak to how his hearers are to relate to their current leaders. Here in verse uh, 7, the focus seems to be on those who spoke the word of God in the past but are not still doing so. I say that because of the second part of this, which is the consideration of the outcome of their way of life. Way of life has to do with conduct or behavior. The leaders the pastor has in view here exemplified faithful obedience to the very word of God they proclaimed. Not because they were sinlessly perfect people. Of course they weren't. But there was in such leaders a trajectory to their lives. And it is their overall faithfulness that the pastor urges his hearers to consider because the focus is on the outcome of it all. The pastor wants them to remember these leaders by thinking about their conduct over the course of their lives. The word translated outcome is a reference to the total impact of the way of life these former leaders pursued. 
They were faithful to the end. So let me encourage you to do this simple thing this week. To remember your leaders. Who has it been in your life that spoke to you the word of God? Think about their teaching and think about their lives. Because if they were women and men of faith, then theirs also was a way of life that's worth considering and imitating, at least in the broad strokes of that, just like the figures we studied in chapter 11. How did they run the race? How did they hold fast and finish well? How did they do what the whole letter of Hebrews is written to help us to do, to persevere to the end and be saved? And then as you remember these stories, tell them, tell them to some, uh, tell the stories of some of those leaders in your small group this week. You'll encourage both yourself and others as you do. And ultimately, you'll find yourself giving thanks to the Lord for those leaders. Because as generation follows generation, there's one thing that remains the same and is transmitted by faithful leaders, and it's there in verse 8, one of the most famous verses in all of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. They trusted Jesus in the past. Now you, today and tomorrow, go on trusting Jesus because who he was for them is who he is for us and who he will be for us and those who will come after us in the future. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But Jesus said that to his disciples too, right? The final words of Matthew's gospel. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our lives of faith can be lived in dependence on the same Jesus on whom our leaders depended. That's why we can imitate their faith. Because the same Jesus Christ is active and present in our lives, empowering us to walk in accordance with his will. So then we move on to the second way that the pastor says we are to ensure we live by faith in verses 9 and 10 of our text. And I've summarized it this way. We are to strengthen our hearts. Now, I've taken that language from the middle of verse 9, where the pastor says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And I realize that I've taken what is a passive verbal construction there. It is good for the heart to be strengthened. And I've turned it into an exhortation. Strengthen your heart. But I do that because I think that's the point here. Ultimately, of course, it is God who strengthens our hearts, not we ourselves. And that's clear since it's grace that does the strengthening, and grace comes from the Lord. But we've seen before in Hebrews that such grace is something we're supposed to seek. 
This is to listen again to the heartbeat of Hebrews because this same grace is what we read about when the pastor began the large central section of his sermon in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Listen again to this, these words. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Then verse 16 of Hebrews 4 is the key. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in the middle of verse 9 of our text in chapter 13, when the pastor says it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, well, where do you think that comes from? <laughs> How do we find such grace that strengthens our hearts? The answer is, by drawing near to God. And we draw near to God only when we're convinced we can do so because Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest. You see, having worked now through all of Hebrews, my hope is that you are convinced of that fact. Convinced that Jesus is the better sacrifice who brings about the better covenant that guarantees the better possession and our better resurrection in the future. We draw then on all of Hebrews here to give us the confidence that we can draw near to God in order to find this grace that strengthens our hearts. That's what we have to do, in fact. Because the opposite of that is to not find grace in time of need and instead do what the first part of verse 9 is warning against, to be led away. Here to be led away or carried off by diverse and strange teachings. Teachings that are not what the pastor has been emphasizing all through his sermon, in other words. Now, exactly what the diverse and strange teachings were in this first century church, we don't know. The primary clue we have is in the second half of verse 9, where the pastor says that it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them, or literally those who walk in them, who live their lives according to them. Now this context is clarified even further for us by verse 10, which goes on to say, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, or you could translate it, those who worship in the tent, have no right to eat. Now, the language here of foods and of the tent or tabernacle, this language is almost surely picking up on various old covenant practices. We saw in chapter 9 of Hebrews that in summarizing there a discussion 
concerning the first or old covenant that had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, chapter 9, verse 1 says, the place that's called the tent or the tabernacle. The pastor summarizes in chapter 9, verse 9, by saying, according to this arrangement, that is the structure and the worship practices of the old or first covenant tent, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, which we said is essentially the same as saying the heart of the worshiper, but deal only with food. Now there's the word that's used again in Hebrews 13 in our text. Deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, given these connections and back into Hebrews, especially in chapter 9, it seems clear that in some way, the diverse and strange teachings here are connected to old covenant practices. But exactly in what way they're connected isn't clear. The simplest and probably the best suggestion is that these first century Christians were dealing now with teachings which persisted in denying the obsolescence of those old covenant practices, even though Christ had come. That is that these were teachings that acknowledged Christ and yet in some way denied his complete sufficiency for salvation. It may be that these teachings somehow particularly focused on continued allegiance to old covenant food laws specifically, or it may be that the pastor simply selected that aspect of it for rhetorical effect. Either way, if this is right, then those who serve the tent in verse 10 probably refers not exclusively to Levitical priests, but to those who worship in the tent, meaning all those who are in some way holding on to the old covenant systems in a way that is contrary to the gospel as revealed in Jesus Christ. The gospel of which those very old covenant systems were in fact shadows, to use language we've studied elsewhere in Hebrews. Such teachings would be strange not in the sense of being unconventional or bizarre, but in the sense of having no place now in the gospel of Christ. As one commentator suggests, the coming of Christ makes continued allegiance to what was anticipatory, that is the old covenant practices. It makes allegiance to those things perverse. Or frankly, it might be, even though I just said all of that, it may be that there was something else going on. Something else that was in connection to these old covenant categories, but was some kind of strange distortion of them. Somehow having to do with eating certain foods, perhaps in ritual contexts. The fact is, we really don't know. But the bottom line seems clear that whatever these diverse and strange teachings were, they had the effect of turning those who walked according to them away from the one source of strength for the heart, the grace of God, that's found as we draw near to him 
confident in the work of our great high priest. Which is what all false teachings ultimately do, brothers and sisters. And I think we can even get more specific than that because I think the pastor is pointing us here specifically to the cross, to the self-sacrifice of our great high priest. Whatever these diverse and strange teachings were, they had as their focus, they promoted as some way to strengthen their adherence, something to do with foods and such things, rather than the cross of Jesus Christ. And I say that because of the language of verse 10. When the pastor says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, I think he uses the word altar as a figure of speech to connect into the tent or tabernacle context. But he uses the word altar here to refer to something else, namely to the cross of Christ. In other words, I think when the pastor says we have an altar, he means we can figuratively eat, not the literal foods of the old covenant system, but the spiritual food, if you will, of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Only that food can strengthen our hearts. That is the place of the sacrifice for our sins. Those who serve the tent in their devotion to foods have no right to eat from that altar because by their teachings, it seems they in fact deny the sufficiency of the cross. It all reminds me of Galatians, where in a key summary statement in Galatians 2 verse 21, Paul concludes, I do not nullify the grace of God. Notice there that it's grace that is also the key for Paul. I do not nullify the grace of God, he says, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Or to use the pastor's wording in Hebrews 10 verse 14, by a single offering, he, that is Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The offering, of course, was himself. As chapter 9, verse 26 says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And because he did it, he himself was able to pass through the heavens to be seated at God's right hand as our great high priest, thus purifying the heavenly things themselves so that we can go where he has already gone. It's all because of the cross, the altar, if you will, where our final sacrifice was offered once for all for our sins. That's what makes it possible now for us to draw near to the Lord, brothers and sisters. And it's when we do that, that we find the grace that strengthens our hearts and enables us to live the life of faith to the end. Which leaves us then with one more way in which the pastor says we are to ensure that we're among those who live by faith 
And here we're in verses 11 to 14. And I've summarized it this way. We are to embrace the cross of Christ. We are to embrace the way of the cross. From verse 10, where the pastor refers to the cross as the altar from which we are to figuratively eat, the only food that can strengthen our hearts, the pastor now goes on in verses 11 to 13 to focus on the Day of Atonement ritual to reinforce his point. And we don't have time to review the Day of Atonement that's presented in Leviticus chapter 16, but the key points are here in Hebrews 13 verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places, that is the most holy place, by the high priest, which is how we know we're talking about the Day of Atonement here, because it was the high priest who did this. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the high places, the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, verse 11 says. And it's that last part that's going to be the connection to Jesus that helps the pastor make this final point. This is all coming out of Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, which says, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Leviticus 16, verse 27. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And then Leviticus 16 verse 28 says, And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. Now, the pastor has already made the point earlier in Hebrews that the sin offering itself was pointing forward to the cross of Christ. That's not new, and that's assumed here. What's new here is this connection between what happened to the bodies of the animals and what happened to Jesus. Because there's a difference between them here. In the Day of Atonement ritual, the sacrifice itself took place inside the camp, at the entrance to the tabernacle. Then the blood would be carried in and the bodies taken outside of the camp to be burned. Why? Well, because they were now full of sin, you see. And the place outside the camp was the place of uncleanness. It was the realm of the unclean. It was literally where the unclean were to be sent, where flagrant violators of God's covenant were taken to be executed, and where the leftovers of the Day of Atonement sacrifices were burned. To be outside the camp was to be unfit to be seen by the Lord. It was a place of defilement, of banishment from God's holy presence. You notice how even the person who burns the animal bodies has to himself bathe before he can come back in, right? The point is, that's where Jesus was executed, where he in fact endured God's wrath as he bore others' sins in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, as the pastor puts it in verse 12. 
But then here's where the connection comes for the hearers of Hebrews. Because Jesus' crucifixion outside Jerusalem represented not only his forsakenness by God, but also his repudiation by the old covenant community, by his own people. John 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It was in his utter rejection that Jesus would accomplish our great salvation. The lesson the pastor draws from all of this is in verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We must not forget that Jesus made his all-sufficient high priestly sacrifice in a place that spatially emphasized his utter rejection. And Jesus told his disciples they would endure the same rejection as he would. To follow Jesus is to carry one's cross. Our Lord said in Mark 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now the recipients of Hebrews must be prepared to share the reproach that Jesus endured. To join Jesus outside the camp evidently meant significant loss and ostracism for them. Perhaps some had identified with old covenant practices in order to avoid persecution. Well, whatever the case may be, the point for them and for us is that we must embrace the way of the cross, which means we must go to Jesus outside the camp. Interestingly, there was one other key time in Israel's history when going outside the camp was the way to meet with God. Exodus chapter 33 describes how after Israel's adultery with the golden calf, the Israelites' defilement was so pervasive that Moses had to pitch the tent of meeting outside the camp. That then became the place where the faithful went to meet with God. The New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce completes the analogy. He says, now in the person of Jesus, God had again been rejected in the camp. His presence was therefore to be enjoyed outside the camp, where Jesus was. And everyone who sought him must go out and approach him through Jesus. What was formerly sacred was now unhallowed because Jesus had been expelled from it. What was formerly unhallowed was now sacred because Jesus was there. And so it is today. Wherever Jesus Christ is denied as the only Savior for sinners, whether in false churches or in families or in the world at large, all who stand with him must be willing to go outside the camp. To those who do decide to follow him, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. We must embrace the way of the cross if we are to live by faith. We must be willing to go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For, the pastor reminds us in verse 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The pastor's three exhortations for his hearers are also for us. And we must embrace them if we are to live by faith. Remember your leaders, imitating their faith in the confidence that Jesus Christ is the same for you as he was for them. Strengthen your heart by finding grace as you draw near to God, fully convinced that Christ's sacrifice provides all the spiritual food you'll ever need. And then embrace the way of the cross by going to Jesus outside the camp, knowing that whatever you must give up in this life will be worth it when in the life to come you hear these words from Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.